It is a balmy summer's day. Of course it is. It really actually is a balmy summer's day. This is post-ASIO. I was driving down the road to get some ice. We have a family tradition where my family get together before Christmas to have the big Christmas lunch so we don't have the pressure on Christmas Day. Well, also, it's really difficult sometimes to get everyone's schedules together. My my in-laws travel overseas all the time. Well, they did before COVID, of course. So it's always complicated and difficult. So I'm driving down the hill to buy a couple of bags of ice. Yep. And then... Over the radio, I hear something that is literally going to change the entire country. I didn't tell anyone when I got home. I decided to not tell anyone because I thought, let's not spoil lunch until my wife and my mother, the two women who know me the best, yep. both at separate occasions. First, my wife is like, okay, you keep sneaking out to smoke dope. She's <laughs> like, she really does know me no, very well. Yeah. And I just like, no, 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 no. It, it's work. The worst thing I can say to my wife, because she immediately turned around and went, what's going on? You don't have work, David. You're an actor. It's December. <laughs> there is no work. And I went, something's happened in the city. Ooh. And she went, turn on the television. I know you want to. And we spent the rest of the day watching the Lint Siege. Let's talk about it. Let's. You're listening to I Spy, the interrupted Christmas lunch of Australian intelligence. Smoke a joint or watch a siege. Why not both? Oh my God, you need better friends. Hello and welcome to I Spied. My name's Michelle Stevenson. I'm here with David Callan and we're going to talk about the Lint Siege because both of us have perspectives on this. Yes, we do. You're, let's unpack yours first. Well, my perspective is from the intelligence perspective yes. because admittedly by this point in time, my career with intelligence is well removed right. from what's going on. But I still have that eye. They basically teach you how to think about certain situations. And this was one that, as I said, I was at a Christmas lunch at Mm. the time and I kept sneaking out to either check my phone or try to pick up something, going into the bedroom, switching the TV on quickly to watch the ABC, switching it off quickly if anyone came in. And that's when, of course, my family found out and then we all sat there. Now, personally, I work in the city. I work about, you know... A five-minute walk from Martin Place. My kids go to school in the city. Admittedly, they weren't at school because school was out by then Mm. for the summer holidays. But there was that real thing of, oh, my God, this is happening where I work, right where I am. The other thing was, by all accounts and purposes, this is a terrorist act. Now, let's be honest with it. It wasn't. The, The best way to describe this was a psychotic break from somebody who had basically pushed himself into the intelligence sphere. Yes, but it depends what how you define terrorism. Yes, All right, exactly, right, because there's domestic terrorism yes. and then there's politically motivated violence. Let's talk about the man. Right. So, Manharon Monis. Yep. So, Manharon Monis. Not Monis, a good man. Not a good man at all. Actually, uh, man, uh, his full name was Muhammad Hassan Mategi Burudjerda. Great. Or Burudjerdi, I should say. Yep. Right. So he was born in Iran in 1964. He had multiple aliases. Of course he uh, did. Michael Hassan Mavros, Sheikh Haron, Ayatollah Muhammad Mateg Burudjerdi. And they all went with these multiple personalities because exactly. this man really believed some crazy stuff. Well, he made a lot of interesting claims. He claimed that he was an Iranian intelligence officer. He was a political activist. He yep. was a spiritual healer. Yep. He was a Muslim cleric. He was a... An aficionado of black magic. He was a bikey. He was an ISIS terrorist. He was also a security guard. Yep. So the whole thing was this guy came to the country in about 1996. All right. Yeah. He came to Australia and 
made an application for a visa, which was just a business visa, which he was given. He was allowed into the country. Everyone gets them when you show up at the border. And then he applied for a visa in 1998. He wanted a protection visa. Right. right. So basically, that was his first contact with ASIO. ASIO then interviewed him and basically rejected his application. They said, look, uh, he's an indirect, possibly direct risk to national security, but not in relation to politically motivated violence. They just thought there's something dodgy about this guy. All right. Now, in 1999, so a couple of years later, immigration turned around and said, we want you to revisit this guy. So they investigated him. They interviewed him a second time and begrudgingly gave him a clearance to get the protection visa. He gets his protection visa and great, here we go. Now, remember a little date, 11th of November, uh, September yes. 2001. Right. Sure do. Right. Etched in my mind. The very day afterwards, yeah. Man Morris rang ASIO and said, hey, I've got info that proves that Iran funded the attacks. ASIO sort of raised their eyebrows, went really? and interviewed him and went, yeah, no. Okay, fine. Thanks, mate. Good. Uh, nice to talk to you. Fine. Now, uh, he also rang them to warn them of a protest that was going to happen at the Iranian embassy. Now, a week after the London bombing, so around about the 15th of July 2005, we had the big London bombings in the mm-hmm. buses and the trains. Yep. Well, he claimed he had urgent information for ASIO, and then when they interviewed him, he offered to be a source because he was by this time he was calling himself a Muslim cleric, and he was offering to assist them because he had contacts in Al-Qaeda and other terrorist organisations to which ASIO went, oh, my God, this guy's a pain in the ass." Yeah. Then in 2007, as a Muslim cleric, he offered a three-page plan to become a source within the Muslim community to which ASIO went, you got nothing, guy. And then he started sending notes and letters to the Bali bombers' families, yep. to the uh, families of soldiers who'd either been injured or died in Afghanistan, Australian soldiers. Yep. He was sending them letters saying that they were you know, going to die in hell and stuff like that. Yep. He started getting worse and worse. Now, this was the interesting thing about Man Monis, is what they didn't actually look at was his criminal history before he left Australia. Yeah, which is interesting that they didn't. Well, they kind of did, but they like ASIO would have done that. They would have looked at everything and that probably would have been their adverse risk because essentially he said he fled the country because he was an intelligence officer who expressed liberal views, which meant that he was being pursued by the Iranian intelligence service because they wanted to kill him. But actually he fled the country, according to Iranian police, because he defrauded his clients out of $200,000 through his travel agency. Yes. He had a record of like fraud and violence. So- This actually started to show up in his record in Australia when he had some 40 charges of sexual misconduct through his spiritual healing company where he would have to touch you to spiritually heal you. He was an accessory to murder of his ex-wife. Yes. This guy was By his girlfriend. By his girlfriend. Who she claims he coerced her into doing. Yeah. So this guy was- He's a piece of work. Yeah. He's essentially, basically, as ASIO, as it's been regarded, now, essentially, that basically turned around and said he was a serial pest. And this is also what we should say off the back of last week's app. This is what the Fixated Persons Unit was set up. Yeah. Now, here's a do. document for you. If you really want to read it, I'll put it on our Twitter feed at no Ice one wants Podcast. To read it. No one wants to read it. Yeah, you never know. Uh, the coroner's inquest into the deaths arising from the Lint Cafe siege. 
Look, it's a light bedtime reading, 495 pages. I can't wait to read it. Double column. I did. And let me tell you, it's it's hard going. Now, a lot of what goes on in there, a lot of the stuff in it, there is a second report that is classified. You can't get to it. So mm. a lot of the stuff that happened with ASIO has been classified. Essentially, what happened was the, the coroner has turned around and said, well, look, you know what? ASIO pretty much did everything they needed to do. Yeah. The problem was it became a problem of communication. So what happened was a couple of government departments have been sent letters by Manmonis. Now, they were unable to pass them to ASIO. Had they passed them to ASIO, they would have come up with a lot of different findings. Yep. But because of the restriction on the passage of information from one government department to another, ASIO was hamstrung in their assessment. Now, that has changed. They've actually put in rules. And again, part of that confidential report expresses the way that we're going to change that. But they'd also mentioned what they called the Fixated Persons Assessment Centre. Yep. Like they wanted one built. Of course, the police have turned it into a Fixated Persons Unit. And as we said last week, well, they're having a lot of fun with that, aren't they? Yeah. And also, look, the Fixated Persons Assessment Centre would have included more mental health facilities, which is kind of what a lot of these people have. They suffer from mental health. Like if you were to really break down Man Monis's criteria, like a lot of this was mental health. Well, essentially he was actually- Borderline uh, schizophrenic. Psychologically assessed, borderline schizophrenic, um, suffering from narcissistic personality disorder Mm -hmm. and possibly obsessive compulsive disorder as well. This guy was the full deck. He was a full house. If you dropped him on the table, you're going to take the pot. This guy was not in any condition to be walking around. He chained himself outside a courtroom after he had an adverse finding to an appeal that he put in. Like this guy was a, he really was a serial pest. 100%. Now, the way it was described was essentially what he wanted to do was insert himself into the narrative. Yeah. He wanted himself to be a hero. And his behaviour was extreme. Like, at one point he got married, uh, and while he was married, he would close the curtains to his house and wouldn't tell anyone at the mosque that he was married because he had a wife in Iran that he was trying to bring back because she was being harassed by the Iranian Secret Service. At least that's what he said. Personally, I think she's probably sitting back in Iran going, phew, thank God he's gone. Yeah. He was not a stable character. No. So essentially this leads us into what becomes the Lint Cafe. Mm. And look, before we go any further, this is a terrible thing to happen. Two people died. Other than Man Monis, who was killed by the police going in, he murdered a guy in cold blood. Yep. So Tori Johnson, I think it was, yep. the manager. And then there was, um, I think it was Katrina... Dawson, yeah, the, Katrina Dawson, who the barrister was, who was who was pr- who was injured, what well, was uh, mortally wounded, yes. as the police came in, yes. and that's another thing that we need to talk about is that entire the police handling of the incident was. Yep. I think the best way to put it is flawed. Yeah, and that came out of the inquiry. That definitely, like so much came out of this inquiry. As I I said, we weren't set up for a terrorism act, basically. No. And the one thing that came out of this, and regardless of whether you call it a terrorism act or not, one thing that came out of this, that systems were put in place, it's kind of like a pandemic. Yeah. Now we know how to treat a pandemic. We know how to deal with it. Yes. Now, here's the thing. I mean, as we all like to say, people will sit there and shake their head and go, oh, this is terrible. Why didn't they do that? And why didn't they do this? 2020 hindsight is a wonderful gift and we're all blessed with it. We all like to Monday quarterback or, you know, whatever you want to do. We know what we would have done once we've seen the result of someone's actions. But this was an incredibly complicated situation to be in. And also, like as you said, were they really prepared? No, I would say no. No. Because from a journalism perspective on that day, 
all the information that was coming through to us. When I think about now the audio, if I was to play you the audio of the news reports that I was running. Because you were there, weren't you? You were in Martin Place? No, I wasn't in Martin Place, but I was at Piermont. And so our studios are above 2GB. 2GB was getting all the calls and the threats. And Mm -hmm. what this has also shown us is that our security for our radio station has needed to be tightened. Oh, yeah. Because out of it, we realised that there was so many ways that someone could have got in. Yeah. And Man Monis was calling up a lot of radio stations and a lot of news stations and trying to get on air and espouse his beliefs. Well, this was the interesting thing, right? So essentially he went there, he met his barrister, I believe, um, to find out what was going on with his court case. And his barrister basically turned around and said, look, mate, I've got another court case I've got to go to. I can't talk to you right now. And something snapped. I'd yep. say. Something snapped and he pulled out a shotgun. He had a backpack that he said he had a bomb in and he takes over the cafe. Yeah, and there was belief that there were multiple bombs in multiple locations. Yes. Uh, as it turns out, of course, there wasn't. No. Now, the whole thing was, interestingly enough, he was licensed to carry a weapon because he was a security guard, but he did not own a license or a registered firearm. No. So, where he got the shotgun, who knows? He was associated with bikies for a while, though, admittedly, all the bikies loathed him. Even the bikies didn't like him. (laughs) You've got a real problem when even bikies go, dude, just go away. Right, we can't stand you. He takes the cafe and his two demands are simple. Can I have a real ISIS flag, please? Because the one I've got is not right. Yeah, which you know you know he's not a full quid when he does he he hasn't even planned properly. There's a few rules loose in the paddock. This was not a planned exercise. This was a target of opportunity, I think. I think yes. this is, it, something snapped in him and he went, this is my moment, my moment in history. And you know what? Man Monis has got his moment in history, but it's not a great moment to have. No, he comes like, across like a fool. He does. This is the thing. He really comes across as a fool. He really comes across as an exceptionally unstable person. He's not going anywhere. No, look, when you stand up and go, I'm doing this for ISIS, and ISIS ring and go, dude, uh, he's not with us. You know you have a problem here. So this guy's very unstable. I demand that you give me a real ISIS flag so I can fly the ISIS flag correctly, and I demand that you let me speak to Tony Abbott. That's never going to happen. No. Our Prime Minister is not accessible. Now, a lot of people sort of say, well, why didn't he take the phone call? Because you know what? If that's all it takes to get on the line with Tony Abbott, my God, everyone's going to do it. Yeah, and I believe he was, he'd called into Ray Hadley and mm-hmm. um, he was on the line to the producer. They were there in turn speaking to the police. Mm-hmm. And there, at no stage, was he allowed to speak directly to the people, which is what he wanted. He was yeah. hoping to be put on air and was yep. demanding it. But instead, the police um, informed the show not to do that. Of course. Exactly. You don't want this to go out, mainly because it's going to start panic. Well, no, but like Ray was saying that they had him on the line. Mm. But I think at this stage, I mean, we all knew what was happening as it happened because it happened right across from Channel 7. Yeah. I mean, even Channel 7 had had their problems with him when somebody, they'd had a Muslim academic on talking about something and Man Monis actually started showing up every day with a sign that he would, because you could, you know, you had Koshi and and whoever the other person is, I can never tell. Um, they change so quickly. There's been many. Sam Armitage? Before her. 
Oh, Mel Doyle. Whoever was. Yeah, Mel. That's okay. right. Mel Doyle. Right. So the Mel Doyle, they'd be sitting there on the couch with, you know, that classic yes. shot through the window and there's Mad Monus waving a flag saying, you know, you're all going to die in hell. So they eventually had to change the entire aspect of the studio because he kept standing behind them in those light crosses. Yes. So- and he also did try to get into Channel 7. His initial plot was to get into Channel 7 and get on air and make his demands on air. But that didn't happen. The security actually stopped him from entering. See, now there there were other ways of doing this. There are other ways of getting onto Channel 7. You know, you could sort of like go oh, yeah, I've got this terribly sick child, and boom, you're on, right? I'm a very cynical person. Yeah. Um, or you could just say, hey, I'd like to be the cash cow. Why not? I mean, admittedly, you're dressed as a cow, but I mean, at least- He should have just put the cash cow costume on, yeah, gone in, gone and in. then taken it off. Uh, no. Ha-ha. Ha-ha, it's me all the time. Yeah. And everyone goes, oh, God, it's him again. Yeah. Now, this is the problem, all right? Right, what's so the problem? The, the problem is this guy was- totally unstable, but then we weren't prepared for it. Now, there were negotiators that were working with him. That's an exceptionally complicated job, hostage negotiation. I had the great pleasure of spending a bit of time with an FBI hostage negotiator. This guy was quite incredible. And what came out of that? Well, one of the things was the really good hostage negotiators really know their gear. He told the story about how he was standing next to the hostage negotiator in London during the Iraq embassy siege. And while the SAS, and there's that great footage of the SAS swinging through windows and dropping grenades through you know, windows and, you know, flashbanging their way through. Basically, he's standing there talking to the head terrorist, the guy who's holding the hostages, and, you know, he's like going, no, I made, no, it's fine, don't worry about it. Let's talk about the plane that you guys are going to get on to get out of here, all right? Before we go any further, let's talk about how we're going to get you to the airport. Mm. And you can hear grenades going off and just like, you know, I can hear explosions. No, no, look, I'm looking at the building now and it's, it's a backfiring bus down the street. It's got nothing. Meanwhile, the SAS are literally going through that guy's window and then it's it's like the FBI guy said he had one of the earpieces to a headphones to his head and literally heard the shot and the phone drop on the other end of the line. And like the hostage negotiator went, no, it's done. They basically kept this guy on the phone. Till they could make him they inactive. Could, until they made him inactive, essentially. Yeah. Monas never took the phone call. He always worked through an intermediary, so it was always a hostage. Now, one of the problems was the hostages were getting very frustrated. Every time one of them spoke on the phone and the police would get, sort of, oh, we're, we're seeing what we can do, we've got to pass it up the chain, they were getting frustrated. And then, then the hostage negotiators were then turning around and going, oh, they're suffering from Stockholm Syndrome, they side with him. No, they won't. They want to get the bloody hell out of there. Yeah, and because what was happening was he was his demands was that he would speak when he was on air. Yeah. So he was making them do all the phone calls to everyone and, yep. and try and get him on air. Yeah. Yeah. But now, the thing was, they wouldn't have done that. They wouldn't have bothered with like speaking to anyone because they're not going to put him on air. It's not going to happen. And once someone should have said that. This is not going to happen. Now, the other thing is he made a couple of other demands. There were a couple of, like uh, there was a truck and a car parked near the cafe and he wanted yep. them moved. And they went, oh, well, we've got to talk to somebody about that. It took them five hours to move them. Now, the thing is, if he goes, we want to move these cars, you want to move those cars, send some of your hostages out. If you give us the hostages, we'll move the cars. So right. what went wrong with the hostage negotiation? Were people just ill-equipped to negotiate? Well, the other thing was the out of the inquest, one of the things that came out was the fact that there were more than one hostage negotiations going on that day. There was something like four. Right. So it's not just that. So the head of hostage negotiation was back at the police control centre and he was trying to juggle not just the Lint Cafe, but there were like another three or four yep. domestic incidents going on as well. 
So that's important. Now, this is the other thing. Our guys normally deal with that. They normally deal with things like domestic incidents with, you know, a guy holding his kids and wife hostage, Mm. you know, at knife point, that sort of thing. So there's that going on. The other thing was as well as they worked in shifts. So as they did a handover, a lot of information got lost. So there was that, the the fact that the trucks needed to be moved, but that as one guy gets gets that train in motion, there's no one backing it up. And the other thing they didn't do is they didn't stop every so often and go, hey, what's working, what's not working? Yeah, are we calming him down? No, we're not. Why aren't we calming him down? We've kept going down this line and nothing's changed. What do we need to do to change? They weren't actually like going back and checking what they were doing to see what the effect was. And finally, the one that came up was the Christmas lights. Yep. So there are Christmas lights in Martin Place at the time. It's Christmas. And he demanded that they get switched off. Now, the thing is, the tactical unit that was tasked to go in there, if should it happen, and of course it happened, those guys basically turned around and went, yeah, switch them off. That's a great idea. Let's switch these lights off. But then it was, we're not sure if we can. And and again, you want to switch the lights off, mate? We're happy to do it. Send out some hostages or send out the backpack with a bomb in it. Yep. Give, we can give you something. That's what you've got to start doing with a, in these situations. It's got to be tit for tat. You've so got did, to- did this stuff come out of the inquiry? This all came out of the inquiry. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel... To be a hostage negotiator in that situation would have been bloody awful. But they probably have don't have a lot of practical experience, if I'm going to be honest. It's Well, uh, I think that one of them said that he'd had a total of something like three months training in five or six years. Now, this again, this is all in the inquiry. So it's, if you want to read it, dig deep. and like. But the whole thing is they only mention them by first name. That's all you get. Is, yep. you know, there's this and there. The whole thing was these guys, the eyes of the world are on you now. Yeah, right? you're the hostage negotiator, and we see all the movies, and it's always a very cool guy who knows everything about psychology. Yep, you know there are guys like that. I had the the pleasure of spending time with one of them, and they are amazing people. But if you're not really switched on, and that is your gig, and that's your only gig, this is going to be a really bad day for you. And it turned out to be a, a difficult day simply because no one was talking to anybody else. Well, it one, was the leadership that got called into question a lot. Oh, yeah, a lot of that, particularly because it was like, oh, okay, I'm going to Bundy off now, you can take over. Or somebody saying, you know, this is my patch, I'm going to control it, and then someone else, no, I'm going to take over this one as well. So there was a lot of jockeying for position. Yes. Which, again, this happens all the time, where it's really like – I. Personally, I think great leadership is the ability to go, we need to do this, you know, X, Y, and Z. So X, you take care of X, Y, you take care of Y, and Z, you take care of Z. Not going X, Y, Z, and I'll take care of all of it. It doesn't work that way. It's never going to happen. So the problem we had was there was a massive lack of communication going on. And also the instability of Monas. Yes. Would have really played heavily into what was going on in that room. Because no one knew what he was going to do next because he didn't even know what he was going to no, do No, it was an impro. Yeah. And like, you know, yes and ain't going to cut it in this game. So no. the whole problem we had was we had a police force that was essentially not prepared for Ill-equipped. it. Ill-equipped. Ill-equipped for it right next to a media hub. Oh, my God. Channel 7 was what? 200 metres from the Oh, I mean, they were, they were reporting live from the scene, but basically, because a lot of them were in lockdown, a lot of them yeah. had to leave, but they were standing by the windows and just watching it unfold. Yeah. So they basically, I mean, the pressure at that moment would have been absolutely unbelievable. 100%. Right. And then, of course, what happened at the end? Well- why don't we save that? All right, let's do that. Okay, because we're going to do two parts. Well, I think we have to because this is so big. And I think next week we'll tackle what it looked like and how that day played out for me. 
I'd love to do that. Okay. Okay. 